I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And my guest today is Steve Bevis. The one thing I've learned is that people are willing, even who have suffered a lot. If you go with respect, people are willing to share and to teach. Um, if you're willing to sit, if you like, on that country, on the ground, be covered in red dust yourself and listen, there's a chance that we can, I can rethink for myself who I am as a human being. And we can learn to live together. We can take the past and make a better thing of it. And I believe that is possible. And I believe that's possible not only through meeting Rex, but through many other people who have let me know that just because things have been bad in the past doesn't mean they have to stay that way. It doesn't mean we have to live out of those confusions and ignorance, but that we can uh, hear, learn to hear new sounds and we can hear new words from one another about the way forward. On Saturday, March 21st, 2015, I attended the American Academy of Religion Western Region Conference in Santa Clara, California, and heard Professor Steve Bevis of Sydney, Australia, give a talk on Aboriginal people. I've long been interested in learning more about song lines and dream time, so I took the opportunity to talk with Steve about his talk in further depth. This is that conversation. Welcome, Steve. It's good to be with you, Anthony. And we're here at the Western Regional American Academy of Religion Conference in San Jose at the Santa Clara University. And I heard you talk yesterday on Aboriginal studies and indigenous religions. And I was just fascinated by that because I've always been interested in learning more about the Aboriginal religions and particularly the song lines. But your, what is your specialty specifically? It's Aboriginal studies and? Well, Aboriginal studies, you know, I'm uh, an Australian who's not indigenous myself, uh, <laughs> but have been on a long journey of getting to know uh, the ways and thoughts of my Aboriginal brothers and sisters in Australia. Uh, in terms of a speciality, I guess I look for the ways in which religious aspects of their life are in transformation and emergence, and particularly here at this conference, talking about the ways in which they are in a dialogue with Christianity and enculturating Christianity in new, in new ways in a post-mission era. Uh, most Aboriginal people in Australia were taken onto missions on behalf of the government and off their lands. Uh, and so you might think, oh, why would they want to have anything to do with Christianity? But in fact, 70% of Aboriginal people in Australia are members of Indigenous churches. 70%? That's right. So it's a large number. So what is this Christianity that they're engaging with? How do they make sense of it? And I guess one of the things I'm interested in is the way local indigenous religions reshape things that we call world religions like Christianity for their own ends. So it's their own style. It's their own style. It, and it's more than just stylistic changes, you know, didgeridoos as wonderful they, as they are, right. or, uh, you know, using their own artwork within a church setting. It's also a dialogue about what are the deep things in, the, in life? How, do, how is this world configured? So what I've been learning from my Aboriginal uh, friends in Australia is that as they engage with Christianity, they, th they think about their own Indigenous world in, an, in, 
in new ways because they're thinking, having to talk with someone else who has a completely different worldview. Um, when they've dealt with the missionaries, when they deal with preachers, when they deal with white Australians who brought this kind of worldview to them. Uh, but as they think about it, they actually think about their own worldview. What does the Jukaba mean? What is the dreaming? You might have heard of the dream time. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do, what do we think about that today? Um, and so they start, I guess, developing their own philosophy of what their own worldview has been. Uh, so I think I find those transformations interesting. And uh, they're, for me, they're more than just abstract conversations. These are people who are rethinking their world in the face of government pressures. A lot of them live in remote parts of Australia in the deserts and there's not a lot of economic opportunity. So how do they move forward? You know, they like here in the United States where the native peoples and nations have been often dispossessed of land, and, you know, tr- the trauma of that, the grief of that, genocide, you know, these people live with that. So I'm interested in how they are rethinking their world so they find life-giving aspects, again, within their own culture. You know, so, and they're out there still living their culture. Uh, two weeks ago, um, there were major ceremonies held in Central Australia. Oh, that's right, because it's the equinox. So, yeah, so... It's the time of the year when they traditionally gather and Spring equinox. thousands of people. Um, or the fall equinox for you. Yeah, guys. that's right. We're upside down, <laughs> down, down under. And, uh, but yeah, yeah. So it's, it's happening. Those people are out there on, in the desert countries of Australia, but all around Australia. In urban contexts, they're still re- actively rethinking mm-hmm. who they are as Indigenous people, how they relate to whitefellas like me. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, enacting their traditional cultures and ceremonies. Well, one of the things that really was remarkable to me, we had a conversation yesterday at a reception, and you said a couple of things that I find really remarkable about the Australian continent itself is some of the oldest land Mm. mass on Earth. On the face of the Earth, yeah. Yeah, and the fact that, I I believe you said that the the Aboriginals have 60,000 years of continuous culture. Is that correct? That's what we believe. That's just hard to take in. I mean, the Chinese have a lot when they say 6,000 years, but this is 60,000 years. Yeah, that's right. Um, It's it's an incredible and mind-blowing thing that these people in their people groups have been on that country, on that land, on that continent, enacting their ceremonies, living out their dreaming, um, in their kinship relationships in this way and uh, making sure that the land was cared for, as they talk about, caring for country. And they've been doing that for millennia. Uh, and that, you know, in the late 19th century, anthropologists and other Western theorists went there and said, these are primitive people. And in a sense, they were looking at these deep um, cultures from way back in the past. But what we've had to, and we're still learning it as Australians, is that these aren't primitive cultures, these are rich and complex cultures that hold deep understandings of how human beings dwell on this earth, how the human spirit is nurtured, how people are in good relationships with one another. And their languages, which the first linguists found so complex, it took them 60 years or more to work out some of the structures of these languages, are actually some of the most complex on earth. So these are people who've been there for 60,000 years, 
living what looks like simple lives, but actually with this vital, rich and complex culture that enabled them to hand on the ways of surviving in on this, some desert places, but also rainforests and elsewhere, some of the oldest land on the face of the earth. Well, and you showed a map during your talk that was how many different regions? I mean, when we see a map of Australia, hundreds it, of it's it's divided up to six or six or eight major territories yeah, by the British territories. Yeah, and there's hundreds of these. I yeah. mean, it looks like uh, almost a, a county map in a, a, a state, and these are all uh, particular uh, uh, tribal groups that have their own language. Is that own right? languages, yeah, and there are some common elements to some groupings of languages, but they are all individual. So there are hundreds of languages. Some of them are now tragically are lost. Others are attempting to be renewed and used again. But across northern and central Australia, uh, the majority of Aboriginal people still speak their first language. English is their third or fourth language because they know the languages of the people groups around them. Oh, sure. So if you, if you Google Aatsis, a r S-T-S-I-S, A-I-S-T-S-I-S. You'll see that map and you'll see all of these language groups. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to see and behold. And, you know, they're not st all ruled across the country in straight lines. They are, they, they represent the different shape of the land. Here, right. there's a mountain range here. It curves around this way. This is the limit of our land. These are the water sources here, you know. So, so they're very, very tuned in to the actual topography and exactly. the weather. One of the things that you said too yesterday that the Aboriginals think about six seasons, not four, and that seems to fit the actual pattern of weather on. Uh, well, and that's just where I come from. <laughs> that's Sydney weather. Oh, go ahead. So the Eora Nation people of the Sydney Basin note six seasons. They don't have you know, fall, winter, spring and summer, mm -hmm. uh, which is what I was taught as an Australian, although we call, you know, right, autumn. Right. Um, and, and it doesn't quite fit, but oh. these six weather patterns of cold and then cold, wet and these other things, and they notice when certain buds come out and certain birds fly in, the weather is, is determined by those changes. And across the country, each of those different indigenous people groups would have their own, depending on whether they are in the desert areas or in the tropical north, their own ways of, in cultures and of, of course, seeing the weather. Of course, you know what your neighbors are doing too. Yeah. That's really interesting. Now, next, I want to come to this idea of uh, dreaming and song lines. Tell us about what is, what is dreaming? Well, that's a very complex thing in a way that people have struggled to put a word on. And, Dreaming, uh, one of the early anthropologists came up with, um, and dream time, um, to talk about Aboriginal law, which is, and law is another word. These are all Western words that have been used right. to try and capture the fact that these peoples had a view of the world in which the land itself held meaning. Human beings were come from the earth, live on the earth and return to it, and the ancestors live on the earth. And the dreaming is the body of knowledge and the body of practice and the spiritual reality of that whole sense of creation of this is what the world is. And so the dreaming includes the songs and the stories and the, if you like, the legal relationships and requirements that people have with one another, mm -hmm. the kinship systems that people have. It is all of those things. And um, people live out of that source in their daily life. 
It exists. So the land is a living presence. It is a living presence, yeah. And as they travel around their country, and as you, as, you know, as a non-Indigenous Australian, when I travel with them, they will stop at certain places and um, acknowledge the ancestors in that area before moving across country. They'll make sure that they are not in the wrong place because the dreaming has to be respected. Is this my dreaming? Is it my friend's dreaming over here? They are responsible for it. Somebody else with a different skin name in a slightly different bit of country, this is their country. So there is like multiple dreamings. And you have to respect that. And you have to respect those local dreamings. Because you can get into some significant trouble if you don't. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. You were saying. That's right. Um, and then of course, as in those ceremonies that were just held a couple of weeks ago in Central Australia, you enter in a more ritualistic and full way, if you like, into the dreaming as they sit there and sing, sit on the earth, covered in red ochre dust with boomerangs, clapping them together and singing the song lines, singing the ceremonies that are the dreaming itself. And so they become one, if you like, with their ancestors. They hand on the knowledge of the ancestors of the land to those who are being initiated, to the young. And they learn the stories in these ceremonies. They learn the law. They learn what they're responsible for, which country they're responsible for. So when you say law, it's L-A-W or L-O-R-E? Well, they are learning both, really. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the anthropologists might say the L-O-R-E, the, right, the right. law, the folklore, if but you it's like. But actually the but law. But the folklore is also the law. Literally, you are now in relationship with your sister over there and your cousin over there and your auntie over there, these are our terms, right. and they use skin names. So my friend who shows me around these places, Rex Granite's Japananga. Japananga is one of eight skin names. They all have one skin name, in Central Australia at least. And when they go to ceremony, they learn about that, who they're related to, and then what uh, bit of country their skin name is responsible for. It's complex stuff. It's wonderful, though. It's interesting. It's incredibly rich. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And we're talking with my guest, Steve Bevis, and, uh, of the University of Sydney. And how can people contact you, Steve? Well, Google me. I'm, I'm out there on LinkedIn. And okay. And your last name is B-E-V-I-S. Yeah, that's right. Great. All right. We're going to take a short break and be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are here with my guest, Steve Bevis, who is a student of Aboriginal Studies and Indigenous Religions from the University of Sydney, and we're at the Western Regional American Academy of Religion Conference at Santa Clara University in uh, March of 2015. And before the break, Steve, we were talking about the dreaming and the initiation of the ceremonies of the in, in the southern hemisphere of the fall equinox, though it's coming on to wintertime now. But can you talk to us a little bit more about what the dreaming is? I mean, is it a, a group dreaming? And how do the songs come out of that? And talk about the shapes of the song lines. Well, the song lines in themselves are very interesting because these song lines uh, are like a map across Australia. Um, of roadways, of connecting up sites, sacred sites across country. Uh, and, but those sacred sites are often leading you to water in the desert lands. And so people will learn their dreaming track, their song line. And the songs will contain information about how you travel across country, how you 
in a right way move across the land. So as a group of people and being an initiated to this, I mean, and the song lines are not visible like a roadway. No, no, no. How do, and, but you perceive them how? Well, because they actually uh, take young people out on country and show them these places. They move across the land. So that the they land. develop, the young people to develop a capacity to feel the song line, is that right, or hear it? Yes, to hear it. Um, can you hear them? Can I hear them? Yeah. It's interesting, when, uh, when I'm out on country on these song lines with my Aboriginal friends, I've been taught uh, to listen. Um, as we sit around the campfire, to notice when the wind blows through. And it might only be a gentle breeze that comes, but that lifts up the flames. And somebody who's talking, the flames might uh, grow when they're talking. And so you're listening for the truth of what's being said. That as you move into a certain area, you'll sit, stop and sit down and listen for the breeze and the leaves of the trees. And often the trees are where the ancestors may reside. So you're taught to be attuned to the land, to your own spirit and to the spirits of others. Um, but at the same time as that practice, that sort of deep listening to the land, to the country and to one's own spirit, the songs themselves do tell in narrated form the movement of the ancestors across the land. They went from this mountain to this Sokuja waterhole. They then moved on to across a, a plain to another Sokuja. And so it will both tell in a practical way um, these songs about the song lines or tracks that they are to follow in the real world. But also as they do that, they are learning about how the ancestors made that country. And because the ancestors made those mountains as they moved across the land. They dreamed them into existence. They dreamed them into existence, if you like, to use that dreaming language. Oh but then you, as a person being initiated into it, a young Aboriginal person from one of these First Nations peoples, know that you have to respect the ancestors, ancestors and the work they have done to bring the world into being through their own song and movement as they moved across the land. You have to care for that place. And that's why Aboriginal people to this day want to live on their country. They want to live in the desert lands. They want to live in remote communities. Unfortunately, that's something that often is misunderstood by my fellow Australians. And sometimes there's a point of great debate. Even in the last week, the Prime Minister of Australia made some comments about how those attitudes, he called them lifestyle choices, as if they were some consumerist, cheap consumerist choice. You could use your MasterCard to spend <laughs> on the lifestyle choice of living in a mansion in Sydney and going shopping in Target. Or you could use it if you want to live out there on country. There's not many resources there. It's just your lifestyle choice. So there's this big debate in Australia. Even though this place was colonised, these people have gone through grief and trauma. How much um, should they be supported in this deep spiritual connection with land? And that's a tussle in Australia because for so long there was what the great Australian anthropologist Stanner called the great Australian silence. The things we're talking about today in my parents' generation and before were not talked about. You didn't acknowledge. There were black fellas out there. Yes, okay, but let's not dwell on that too much because there's this sense of guilt that exists around the dispossession. So there's this process of accounting for the past, of how do we live in the present together 
what can be affirmed, what can be paid for, how much can we respect of each other. Um, and so for me, learning about my friends' lives out there is part of me attempting to be part of that conversation. Yeah, it seems so incredibly rich though. You know, there's a film that I love that was made in this country a few years ago called August Rush with Robin Williams and I can't remember the, uh, the little boy who was, but in one scene, uh, the, the little boy is a, a musician who just can hardly uh, not play music. And he's talking to Robin Williams and he says something like, this music, it, it pours through me, it's all around me, you know, don't they hear it? Doesn't everybody else hear it? And Robin Williams says, well, not everybody's listening. Yeah, and, and that there's another great line from the late Robin Williams. Yeah, yeah. That speaks truth. Oh boy. Not everyone's listening. Not everyone's listening. So again, I want to come back to talk to us some more about the song lines, about the shapes of them and... and um, well, as I said, they follow the land, the natural landforms mm -hmm. that are part of, that shape the lives of these different First Nations people. So, right. Um, so it's kind of like an inter interstate uh, or a, a road map. In a sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you just you have to know it by being taught it. You won't. There's yeah. no road there. No. Uh, although some there are now some roads that whitefellas have created that parallel some of these. Okay. Just because it parallels the country, you know, right. you, where you've got to drive alongside that mountain range, so right. we'll put That's a road right. there. Right. Um, but anyway, they these these song lines traverse the whole country, even though there are hundreds of people groups, First Nations peoples, different tribes, Aranda, Amachara, Aliwa, Walpuri, Pichinjara, etc, etc. What's fascinating is that these song lines, they share them. And they are responsible for certain parts of these so sections of these song lines. They know the story and the songs that their skin groups and their ancestors were responsible for. And they sing that story. And that when they get to the edge of their country on that song line, the next group takes over that same story uh -huh. of the movement of the ancestors across that land. And they'll take up the singing of that story. So when they get there together in ceremony, they will take turns in singing their section of their song lines. That's just extraordinary. Yes. And, and I remember you showing some slides of some of these song lines and they actually looked like flowing rivers or you know or it, it was aboriginal art mm -hmm. that showed the and it looked dot like dot paintings yeah dot paintings it looked like flowing rivers or or the grain of wood mm. or you know and it, it just seemed entirely organic mm. you know so that's that's one of the things so i'm interested then has christianity affected the relationship that the aboriginals have with the land that's a big question um, and I think it's a complex, there's no single answer to that no, question. No. Uh, obviously Christianity through the missionaries was used um, to, as it was in so many places to bring people into civilization. It was the religious doorway into civilization. And at the same time it was used by government authorities that as I said earlier, people had to be moved onto these missions. So people were disconnected from their land. At the same time, those missions protected in some ways people from the worst excesses of some of the pastoralists and settlers and others and government officials who carried out massacres. Right. Much like here in the United States, the conflict of the frontiers. In a sense, there was a frontier that swept from the East Coast, from Sydney all the way across. 
and the church's and Christianity's involvement in that is complex. But at the same time, people came onto those missions and they had some space that they might not have had otherwise. They were able to, some missionaries stopped them from doing ceremonial life, others allowed ceremonial life to continue. Uh, so what you find is a patchwork of Christianity's impact. And those, and, he, and missions changed over time as well. Over a hundred period on a mission, you may have different superintendents yeah. who had different views. But effectively what happened is that those superintendents and those missions that allowed ceremony to continue, those missionaries who were also sort of like part-time anthropologists and linguists who learnt and supported people, that enabled Aboriginal people to maintain, in the face of colonial onslaught, some contact with land, some contact with ceremony and tradition. And out of those people and those people groups who had that, others now go back to and have dialogues about what, what we might have lost, what, how can we re reconnect and learn from what you had. So Christianity both played a role as a colonial agent, but also as a space for people to maintain religious practice. And of course, in, in dialogue with Christianity and with those missionaries, they start thinking through their own dreaming and songlines in conversation with somebody else with a different worldview. And so they have to start explaining it to somebody who's different. And in the explaining, in some ways, I think they start thinking, oh, okay, actually the essence of my dreaming is spirit. It's pilapa, as my friend Rex Granitz Japananga says, pilapa. Pilapa kawankami, the spirit, the whispering voice. Again, you're listening to the spirit hearing the spirit, it's in the trees, in your heart, in the land. And he's in dialogue with Christianity, sensing the way in which he sees the spirit in, say, the stories around Jesus. Oh, yes. You know? Um, and so Christianity gives him a way of thinking through, again, not just what Christianity is, but who he is and what his dreaming is. And a lot of that's been going on, um, particularly in the post-mission days when Aboriginal people have authority over their own cultural and religious life. Finally finally, um, to, to go on this new journey of what it means to be Aboriginal in conversation with others and with their own deep traditions. My goodness. We're going to have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright. I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're here with my guest Steve Bevis, who is a, are you an anthropologist or religious studies person? Religious studies person. Religious studies person from the University of Sydney, Australia, and we're talking about uh, Aboriginals and Christianity and we're gonna to have to take a short break and we'll be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright and I'm your host today on Attunement and we're here with my guest Steve Bevis from the University of Sydney who is a, a religious studies person and uh, you teach at the University of Sydney, Australia. And we're here at the Western Regional American Academy of Religion Conference at Santa Clara University in San Jose. So before the break, Steve, you were talking about how the influx of Christianity and in the dialogue that was developed between the Christians and the Aboriginals actually encouraged the Aboriginals to begin to be able to speak about their own spiritual practice. So speak about that more and then I also would like to ask you about your mentor who I believe you've, you've said is Rex Granitz Japananga. You got it. <laughs> yeah, great man. Look, yes, in Christianity in the form of certain individuals uh, has encouraged 
Aboriginal. Not always, though. Not always. Yeah. Some have. I don't want to paint a rosy picture about this. But at its best, certain individuals sensed a brotherhood and sisterhood with the people they are living and working with. They themselves, in a sense, were confronted by the power of that landscape and the dreamings. And they encouraged people. And there are people out there still doing that. At the same time, I'd want to say that actually, I think more importantly, is the strength of now countless Aboriginal leaders themselves who chose of their own volition to say, I am going to work out a way forward for my people through this. One man, Blind Moses, who famously uh, in the Lutheran mission in Hermansburg, just a couple of hundred k's at Alice Springs, um, he worked with the uh, with Carl Strelo, who was the Lutheran min uh, missionary there, an uh, incredible man who translated numerous languages. Uh, but then, on his own strength, went out across the entire land of Central Australia as a missionary, working out, we need to let go of certain things where we are engaged in too much payback. We've always had payback, punishment, for people doing the wrong thing by the law. But now, when we have lost everything, and we are using payback to uh, deal with our problems, we, we're not finding it as a solution. People, too many people are being killed. And he thought through, okay, well, what is this Christianity thing? This is about forgiveness. I think we need to find ways of forgiving each other. And so he went out and was thinking through what his dreaming was, thinking through what Christianity was. And since then, there's been quite a number of people who are willing to stand up and be the critical thinkers. There are Aboriginal critical thinkers out there in the desert right now. And that's what, what my friend Rex Granitz Japananga is. He's an Aboriginal critical thinker. He is a philosopher. He is an Aboriginal theologian. He is, as he calls himself, a professor of the desert. And, you know, he's now enrolled to do a PhD over in Newcastle. For your help, and I applaud you for that. But, uh, I think it's fantastic. But people like him are out there thinking it through for themselves. And they're thinking it through because they want to see their community survive. They want to see them prosper despite all the struggles. And so he's, he, he's out there in various ways, being the head of the Lands Council, which is a large legal institution um, set up by the Australian government for the overseeing most of the desert peoples. He's been out there in the last week leading those ceremonies that we were talking about, one of the four senior men leading those ceremonies. But he's also, as somebody who's taken up... Uh, Christian faith, he's using this dialogue with Christianity. Which actually opens a door. It does open a door for him. It opens a door into conversation in the whitefellow world, but it also opens a door into, okay, let's, let's think through again how we can move forward as a people, how we can rethink our dream. What are the most important things we need to carry forward into the future? Um, so that's quite an impressive yeah. thing that's at play in someone like Rex. Well, you know, the thing that really strikes me quite deeply as we talk right now is if we can learn this capability to listen hmm. to what's actually happening on our planet, it's going to make a tremendous difference and offer us a significant degree of choice about how to conduct ourselves as a human race. Yeah. And these are people who have 60,000 years of wisdom accumulated in this 
particular art form of life on a, on a planet with a very thin atmosphere. Yeah. You know? They know how to survive in, without using up resources, without trashing their environment. Uh, they, and their dreaming has taught them that. And I think there's a lot of wisdom that um, we might learn from if we are willing to listen. Uh, and basically their, their worldview, as I've learned it from people like Rex, is it's relational. Relational with the land, relational with the sky, relational with the water, and relational with each other. So the decisions we make have to be in the best interests of all of those things. You know, we living in this very individualized world um, where we outsource so much to other people. And, you know, we have productivity benefits and all the rest from that. Um, but I think it's perhaps time for a, a conversation with people marginalized as they are who hold some deep truths about how you live and uh, do that without using up uh, all the resources around you. Right. Well, they might seem to be marginalized, but to me, these are the, these are the most resourceful people on the planet in a way. I agree. You know, and yeah. uh, also the native peoples of the yeah. Americas. And, uh, and they, they have many conversations between themselves. Uh, so Rex Grants Japananga, he's been over here. He's in dialogue with uh, Native American leaders from here. And they are, there's this, you know, the global village gets used for global capital. Uh, our indigenous brothers and sisters are using it to create their own dialogue about what's important. That's just really fantastic. Can you talk about more, I continue to be wondering about how reality is dreamed. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know, can you say something more about that or is there much more to say? Uh, well, you know, the, the word dreaming and, and the role of dreams is, again, a complex thing. It's, it's an imported word. And yet oh, there, okay. there, there is, you know, to describe the reality. But there is a sense in which dreams are an important part mm -hmm. of in the indigenous experience and worldview. And so people will be concerned about what happens in their dreams. Uh, has is that how the ancestors communicate also or more? It's partly, it's okay. part of the picture. Unfortunately, the word dreaming or dream time gives you the impression that it's the entire picture. Okay. It's not, but it is part of it. There is an intuition that happens about your being and your place in the world in, that comes in your dreams as well. Uh, so people will be alert, far more alert to their dreams uh, than your average white fella in Australia is and not dismiss them lightly. And they'll be concerned if something happens. Um, you know, and, and, these, and these dreams can be part of the transactions that take place between the material world and the spiritual world. Uh, so, and they may find that when they wake up from a dream that something is present around them. There's a feather on the ground or there's something else that shows the ancestors have been with them or a countryman, as they call it, has been present, protecting them or affirming them. So it's a very uh, deep sense in which we're talking about dreams here and the way this human consciousness and subconscious reacts and, in, and is entwined with the physical world. So the dreaming is not exactly always a sleeping state. 
No. It, is, it sounds more like a trance state to me about when people go into a, a bit of an altered awareness and they are able to expand their awareness to take in the land so that they can actually hear it. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, well, there's, as, there's those aspects to it, and particularly the song cycles that are sung in ceremonies have a, if, you know, with my ears when I hear, I hear music which has influenced trance music, I hear music that gets um, cross-pollinated with, you know, <laughs> ways in which we might approach it. But at the same time, they, they are people who are, in my experience, and, and my friends are almost to a person like this, they're deeply spiritual and uh, deeply connected to land. But they are also funny people. They're really? just in the midst of all this, of serious stuff, serious yeah, yeah. business. They'll laugh, make jokes about someone because they're late or they'll break out of it and, in, and there'll be some banter that goes on. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So they don't very... take this terribly seriously. Well, they do and they don't. They, oh, okay. you know, it, it is serious stuff because it is. It's life and death. Yeah, but at the same time, there's life, a lot of play. It is play. Oh, there's great. joy, and uh, that's been my, again, privilege in spending time with my Aboriginal brothers and sisters well, is to be surrounded by their laughter and joy. Yeah, it, it was it was interesting to me to hear uh, you also said that some of the. Uh, Western music that Rex has picked up as country and Western. Oh, he blows his harmonica. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he... There's, there's breath, there's spirit, there's wind, and some of that wind comes out of his throat and, uh, oh, man. and he dances wildly with unabandoned joy. And uh, yeah, yeah, so it's... There's all that side to it as well. Yeah. Now, the, the, the song lines are not just on the ground. You were talking about last night. I said, well, what when they look at the stars? Tell me what you said there. Well, exactly. Uh, some of the song lines uh, go through the heavenly constellations. So there are dreaming tracks or song lines in the sky as well. And some people, groups are responsible for those song lines. Some, and again, skin really? groups. with Yes, they are. So uh, each group will have a portion of sky that they well, take care of. Some might have a whole track going across. Oh, so, I see. So there is an emu dreaming up in the sky that the people just north of my friend, uh, Rex Granites, from the Gringy people and, uh, and the Walpuri people up at the top end there. And uh, yeah, but it's, what's fascinating to me is that when they look at those dreaming tracks up there, those song lines, they're actually... The, the, and you can see a great view of the stars out there in the desert. Oh, there's, I'm sure. There's no light pollution. No light pollution, yeah. Uh, but they're actually not looking, in the first instance, at the stars and saying, oh, th these stars make this shape. They're looking at the black spaces between the stars. And they see the shape, and you can see there out in the desert, the shape of an emu within the Milky Way. Oh, my gosh. And that's uh, one of the totems up in the sky there for that dreaming, emu dreaming. Uh, and so there's a group of people who are responsible for maintaining the ceremony and songs and storytelling <laughs> of that dreaming That's in the, up there in the stars. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the other things that I was wondering about was what they've done with the invasion of non-native species like rats and rabbits. And can you talk about, I mean, they, and, and camels. You said that there's <laughs> yeah. one of the largest herds of wild camels in the world. There is. There are a bunch of... Afghan uh, <laughs> camel drivers were brought out to help open up 
the outback, as we call it in Australia, right. the desert countries. Yeah. But, uh, and some of those descendants of those people live in Australia too. And, uh, but the camels are still there too, and they've proliferated, and they're across the country. So a bit of a, you know, they trample down some, you oh, know, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, there's sort of culling that goes on and rounding them up, and some Aboriginal people are involved in that as a business, and they'll shoot, hunt them and eat them. And, you know, there are rabbits that have been introduced as well. They'll just see them as good tucker, <laughs> extra food that's on yeah. offer. Uh, yeah, and horse, uh, there are horsemen. Lots of horses too, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And many Aboriginal people became cattlemen. Uh, some of my good friends were cattlemen. And they worked the huge pastoral stations. Australia has some of the, well, has the largest pastoral stations on the face of the earth. So you're speaking about in, in uh, total amount of acreage. Oh, yeah. Oh, so man. one single pastoral station is enormous, almost like the size of a state, some of them. Oh, my and, gosh. And so those cattlemen, as they moved cattle around, right. they got to move across their country. So on the one oh. hand, they've been taken off their land, but one of the things I think they loved about it, they'll say, is that being a cattleman enabled me to be out there on my song lines. Oh, that's fantastic. And to, to, to maintain them, just to dry, go through and make sure things, that water hole's all right, right. all the rest of it. Um, so yeah, they make the most of the moment they're in. Yeah. These are not people who are stuck in some timeless, primitive past. These are people who are intuitive, clever, who make the most of what's happening. It seems like they're beyond time, in a way, beyond time and space, but I'm, unfortunately we're not beyond time and we have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright and I'm your host today on Attunement and we're here with my guest Steve Bevis, a religious studies professor at the University of Sydney and people can contact you by finding you on, on uh, LinkedIn, is that right? Yeah, or, Okay. academia. And your last name is? B-E-V-I-S. Great. Well, we'll take a short break and be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and my guest today is Steve Bevis, a professor of religious studies at the University of Sydney, and we were talking about the Aboriginals being cattlemen, uh, cattle people, uh, and finally getting back on the land after they'd been taken off. By the way, we're here at the Western Regional American Academy of Religion Conference in March of 2015 that's being held at Santa Clara University. You were talking about uh, you've brought groups of students out to meet Rex and to engage with that. Tell us what they've come to understand. Well, they've had the privilege of going out onto some of these song lines with Rex to not just see the beauty of the land, and it is a stunningly beautiful place. Mm -hmm. uh, mountain ranges, rock formations, different trees that you won't see anywhere else, different vegetation. They've seen all that, but they've been there and they've been sitting around campfires with with Rex and being taught to listen. And they've heard some of these stories of, of the dreaming. They've heard some fragments of these songs. Uh, and it, it has, I think, opened up them to a deeper appreciation of Aboriginal culture. And it's also helped them to think through who they are as Australians. That they, in a sense, as Rex says, you are part of this. Just because you've come your, your own ancestors came from somewhere else and part of a very difficult situation for Aboriginal people. They want, for the most part, to let you know that you are part of this. At least Rex does and people like him. And so they get to think through who they are as Australians, what their own relationship to this country Because they were be. born on that land. Yeah, they, oh, they were born on it. You know, maybe a different part of it. They were born there. I was born in Sydney. I was 
born in that country, but I was born into a culture that was not from that country. It was an imported European culture, and we're still struggling to work through, as Australians, to this day, what uh, a culture that is able to dwell on that land and learn from its first peoples looks like, without giving up all the strengths of our own culture. Right, right. Um, and so these kind of opportunities for young people in particular to go out with people like Rex, I think, are really important. And it's, it's complex, you know, we, I remember Rex took us to one site which was a former mission station site. And it's used to this day by Aboriginal people as a campground. It's cleared, it doesn't have all the thistly, you know, and there's lots of hard thorns in this, you know, desert I'm foliage sure, out yeah. there on the ground. It's all over the ground. And, but this is a big cleared area that they've cleared over time. And it's open and, you know, Aboriginal people will often leave stuff there um, for use for next time. So they'll leave even old cans and things like that. So yeah, it looks to my you know, European Australian eyes, it might look like they've left their rubbish there. For them, it's resources that can be reused. Don't throw out anything. You might need to use that can to cut something open next time or something, that old lid. But my young friends in particular were like, oh, oh you know, it's a bit grotty. Um, Rex really wanted us to camp there because it is a site that he felt was a site that signified and told the stories of how Aboriginal people were able to live together with white fellas in a way that had some hope in it. Now, my young friends and others wanted to go and camp on the thistly thorn infested ground, not, you know, only 600 metres away because you get a nice view of the mountains from over there. It was from there, you know, so we, we had thistles in our, thorns in our sleeping bags. Oh, no. But we, but we got a nice view of the, the country because we wanted to see the aesthetics of it, you know. Um, so we, there's still a lot to learn yeah. Yeah. about what's important. Right. You know, how do, how do we really connect with this country? Is it just by going out and seeing nice things? Or do we stop and say, oh, we're going to sit in this place, which is a bit strange to us you know, this campground that might have a bit of rubbish over there and you haven't got a good view of the mountains, we've come all the way to see nice things. But by what would it happen if we sat in that land for longer and thought about those connections that have taken place between black and white? That's what Rex wanted and we couldn't quite get there this time. Maybe another time, maybe some of those people in the future next time. This is a journey we're all on to rethink who we are as Australians and I think it's part of a conversation that probably is actually, as you're suggesting earlier, is really a global conversation that yeah. needs to be had. Yeah. How are we earthlings on this earth and what can we learn from different ways of particularly people who've dwelled on this country with cultures for millennia? Right. Well, and it seems, you know, one of the things I was going to say is, are there song lines here? But that's kind of a naive question. And of course there are. And it would take the sensibilities that somebody like Rex would have the capability to teach people in this country about how to track those, right? Well, the famed Aboriginal tracking. <clears throat> yeah. But yeah, look, I, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of Rex on that. Or, no, okay. Um, but I'm sure he would be in deep dialogue with his Native American uh, Indian friends here about how you track country. Well, tell how, me about it, how to track country or what you, what you know about what that term means. Well, it, it means two things. It's, it's on the one hand, it's knowing 
the spiritual aspects of the law of how you know your songline, you know the stories, you know what's possible and, and what's dangerous and what's good. But at the same time, in learning to be so attentive to the land, to what's there, they notice things. So they actually, there's this whole thing of Aboriginal trackers and the, and the police force of Aboriginal people being able to find people who've escaped and that kind of thing, simply because they can see what's different. They'll, they'll notice that a bird's and not flying in this area because there's something there. Although I notice the finest detail in the sand or dirt or a twig or broken or something. And even when I'm driving along in central Australia on desert, sandy desert roads, Rex will often be there and he'll be tapping the front because he's seen hundreds and hundreds of metres away, well, I can hardly even see it, some little indication that there's going to be the ground shift in a certain way that might be difficult to drive over. So attentive they are to the to the land, to the physical presence of what's there. But that, all, that skill comes out of this deep attunement with right. the land, yep. which is a spiritual and ceremonial and religious ritual law practice. So that whole worldview creates people who can track country, both spiritually and practically. Yeah, and boy, do we need that. Well, we're coming to the end of the time here. Thank you so much for being with us, and I hope to talk with you again and perhaps talk with Rex. That would I'd be a wonderful thing. Australia. If there was one thing that you could talk to our audience about your experience and what you've learned, what would, what would you say to people? Uh, the one thing I've learned is that people are willing, even who have suffered a lot. If you go with respect, people are willing to share and to teach. Um, if you're willing to sit, if you like, on that country, on the ground, be covered in red dust yourself and listen, uh, there's a chance that we can, I can rethink for myself who I am as a human being. And, um, and we can learn to live together. Um, we can take the past and make a better thing of it. And I believe that is possible. And I believe that's possible not only through meeting Rex, but through many other people who have let me know that just because things have been bad in the past doesn't mean they have to stay that way. It doesn't mean we have to live out of those confusions and ignorance, um, but that we can uh, hear, learn to hear new sounds and we can hear uh, new words from one another about the way forward. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. This has just been a real pleasure. Likewise. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we've been talking with my guest, Steve Bevis, who is a professor of religious studies at the University of Sydney in Australia. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.